welcome to the Voris at Work podcast. My name is Jackie Ford. I'm a partner in the Labor and Employment Group at the Voris Law Firm, and I'll be your host today. Our topic for today's podcast is a really serious one. It's the opioid crisis in America and the issues that it's generating for employers. Um, We've all heard about how this terrible crisis around the country is really taking hold in communities near and far, and the scope of it is so huge. And of course, because it is such a big problem, it also inevitably becomes a workplace problem. Um, Just one statistic to sort of encapsulate it, 72,000 Americans died in 2017 alone from drug overdoses, and two-thirds of those drug overdose deaths were from prescription or illicit opioids. So it's an enormous uh, number of people who are dealing with this. Um, Unless you think it is not a workplace issue, just think about this. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that in the five-year period from 2012 to 2017, in that five-year period, there was a 25% increase in the number of workers fatally overdosing on the job, physically having that happen at work. So it is absolutely affecting many aspects of employment, and we really wanted to help you guys as employers be thinking about what are the most important aspects of this that I need to understand, and what are some strategies that I can be thinking about? What can I be doing proactively to anticipate these issues and be ready to respond to them if my workplace ends up being one of those that gets caught in these crosshairs. So we'll talk about the chemistry of opioids and then employment-related strategies once you have that basic understanding in place. And to help us with that first part, to understand uh, what opioids are and why they're so addictive, um, we are joined today by my colleague, Robin Amicon. Robin is a senior attorney in the Voris Healthcare Group and is also a registered nurse. So she's very well versed in the science of opioids, how they work, why it is they are so addictive and so destructive. So I think she'll be really helpful to our conversation today. Robin, thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you, Jackie. It's my pleasure to join you today. So Robin, just to get us started, you know, for most of us who are not, you know, necessarily conversant in the language of this, can you define for us what are opioids? Sure. Opioids are psychoactive chemicals that can occur naturally, like in the resin of a poppy plant or synthetic, which means they're made in a laboratory. There are illegal opioids like heroin, as well as legal opioids that are prescribed for pain relief, things like hydrocodone, which you may have heard of under the brand names of Vicodin or Lortab, oxycodone, um, um, which is also known as Oxycontin or Percocet, or codeine and morphine. None of these drugs, morphine and codeine, are natural opioids, and hydrocodone and oxycodone are semi-synthetic, which means they're created in labs from natural opioids. Um, As far as synthetic drugs that are completely created in a lab, fentanyl is a drug that you may have heard of. It's a newer drug. It's been around since about 1968 and is used in hospitals to treat severe pain. Fentanyl is very strong. It's 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine. And the issue with fentanyl is that it's often added illegally to poor quality heroin or cocaine or sold as Oxycontin, Oxycontin on the streets and made illegally. So this particular drug, has the combinations with fentanyl have really resulted in a lot of deaths in recent years. 
Wow. So, gosh, 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine. That really kind of maybe partly answers the next question I had for you, which is why are these particular drugs so addictive? Yeah, I mean, opioids create artificial endorphins in the brain. Endorphins block pain, slow your breathing, and just have a general calming and antidepressant effect. When you take opioids repeatedly over time, your body slows down its own production of endorphins. So that's limiting a person's ability to experience these strong feelings only when they use opiates. So at the same time as a person's taking opioids, the same dose is going to stop triggering such a strong sense of euphoria. So at that point, the only way an addict is going to experience the same positive feelings is by using even more of the drug. A person actually needs a constantly higher dose to get that same high. There's also a physical dependence with these drugs, meaning your body adapts to the presence of the drug and as you build a tolerance, if you stop using it abruptly, your body's going to go into withdrawal and experience withdrawal symptoms. So these drugs are addictive at the at the level of the brain or brain chemistry. They also have these other very sort of visceral, physical components to them, and the two things take hold, making it all the more difficult, I'm sure, to um, to get out of their grip um, once they've once they've set into the brain. Um, so again, you know, as we were talking earlier, we've heard these really grim statistics of how widespread the opioid addiction crisis is. Do you have any um, sense of, of how we got here? Like, what are some of the factors that caused this explosion in the use or abuse of these drugs? The, the rise in, in opioid overdose deaths is really believed to have come about in about three distinct waves. The first wave started in the 1990s where we saw an increase in pain-related prescriptions. Up until this time, um, doctors were really just prescribing opioids for pain associated with cancer or end-of-life pain management. The second wave started in about 2010 where we saw a lot of increases in overdose deaths um, involving heroin. And then the third wave became began in about 2013, where we saw a lot of overdose deaths involving synthetic opioids like um, fentanyl, as I mentioned. And with this, I think it's important to keep in mind that while some people start using drugs recreationally, many do not. Some people start using them as prescribed by their doctor, but as they build a tolerance, they start abusing the drugs, or they turn to illegally obtained opioids or heroin. I mean, um, the vast majority of heroin, some studies have said probably about 80%, have used prescription opioids before they turn to heroin. So doctors, you correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're saying doctors are over-prescribing um, extremely powerful pain-killing drugs, either without thought as to the long-term implications or or what? I mean, I would just think that doctors recognizing that, that this is happening might be a little more cautious in that regard. The, the overprescribing has stopped. It was really back in the 1990s where uh, pharmaceutical companies um, had informed doctors that these drugs were not as addictive as they really were. Um, so since that time, uh, addiction understanding has evolved. So doctors are not prescribing opioids like they used to. And that's really led to some of the issues too. People need these drugs, they're addicted, but doctors are very hesitant at this point to prescribe or increase any prescriptions. And that's when the abuse starts and possibly turning over to illegal opioids. Uh, so people turn to the illegal drugs in part because 
it's an, perhaps an unintended consequence of an improvement on the administration of the legal drugs, right? Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Okay. So we know that opioid abuse is prevalent and unfortunately doesn't seem to be getting any better. If anything, it seems to be getting worse and more widespread. Um, we've seen some interesting data, for example, that it's particularly uh, having an impact in terms of employers in the manufacturing sector because there is a correlation between high opioid abuse and locations where manufacturing is a prime source of employment. Um, it's not that one causes the other, of course, but that you know, in areas, for example, that have um, had more of a constriction in, in job availability, so higher unemployment in, in manufacturing, um, that that may have contributed to drug abuse as a, a method for uh, for coping with some of those issues. Um, we're not quite sure what the correlation is about, but it's definitely there. Um, so whether you're a manufacturer or any other kind of business, the, the odds are high that at some point you're going to have uh, individuals either in your applicant pool or in your employee base um, who are going to be struggling with some of the issues, whether it's because they started out with a perfectly legal and appropriate um, painkilling medication prescribed by a doctor or because um, they started with street drugs or some combination of those things. So knowing all of that, Robin, are there treatments available, you know, we, we hear these stories of families who really struggle to help their family members who are in the grips of, of an opioid addiction. And of course, employers are stepping into some of those shoes as well, as we'll talk in a moment. But are there treatments available either in the immediate short term for someone who has overdosed or for treatment of these types of addictions more broadly? Sure. I mean, drug addiction is, is typically a chronic disorder characterized by relapses. So treatment can really vary. There's a lot out there. There are residential treatment centers for both short-term and long-term stays. There's outpatient therapy. Some programs are abstinence-based only. They treat with behavioral therapy alone. Others use medication-assistant treatment, or known as MAT. It's um, meant to ease drug cravings and prevent withdrawal symptoms while going through treatment with drugs that, like methadone you may have heard of. And long-term supports and monitoring are also often needed because even with treatment, relapse rates are at 50%. Oh, my gosh. You mentioned immediate uh, treatment as well. You may have heard of Narcan. Um, Narcan's in the news a lot. A lot of public places are carrying Narcan. It's a medication that can quickly reverse an, an overdose. Um, regulations vary by state. In Ohio, um, Narcan can be dispensed by a pharmacist without a prescription as long as they follow state regulations. Um, Ohio also has Project Dawn. It's deaths avoided with Narcan. It's an overdose and um, Narcan distribution program of partners with communities so individuals can actually get Narcan kits and training at no cost through these programs. Wow, so probably your average uh, supervisor in a manufacturing facility or, or other kind of workplace doesn't already have this kind of training, but individual employers can decide what makes sense for them in terms of whether they want to have that uh, available as an option physically in their workplace. And I have to say, we have been getting a lot of questions from clients about how do we deal with this? And uh, this, by this, I mean, you know, the, the opioid impacts on our workplace generally. And I think there's um, at least four sort of categories of things to be thinking about. Again, if you're 
trying to plan in advance uh, so that you are ready if, if this um, does happen to come to your workplace. We can talk a little bit about testing, we can talk about training, talk about treatment-related options, and also leaves of absence, because there are leave issues that, that can arise here as well. So let's talk first about um, testing. Most of our employer clients that we work with do some kind of drug testing. It might be some kind of combination of pre-employment testing, where you're testing for identified substances, um, and you're doing that post-offer pre-employment in compliance with the ADA. Um, in certain safety-sensitive positions, of course, that's mandated by the Department of Transportation, regulations, or others, but any employer can, can choose to do that kind of pre-employment testing. Um, others do a combination of that with post-accident testing, uh, for-cause testing, um, or just random testing. And you, you certainly can do, again, quite a, quite a variety of those. There are some slight variations in state law as to what you can do in each of those categories, but you can do that. The tricky part about it, of course, and Robin, you were just making this point, that opioids include both legal and illegal substances. You know, normally we think of drug testing as we're, we're testing for drugs that are solely illegal drugs, but here you would be casting your net from a pharmacology point of view, you'd be necessarily capturing people who have a legitimate prescription that they are not abusing, as well as people who are abusing uh, either a prescription or an illicit opioid. So you do have to put protections in place to make sure that you don't end up with information that you as the employer would prefer not to have and that you really shouldn't have. Um, and the way that you do that is you have a medical officer um, who is screening the results of the drug screens and only providing you back certain information. And we can you know, certainly give you the details in how to do that in a way that helps you screen your workforce, but also does not uh, run afoul of any privacy or ADA-related issues that you might have. The ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, by the way, does not protect users, current users of illegal drugs or current users of legal drugs in a way that is abusive or inconsistent with, with the prescription that they have been given. Um, so it's not that you have to accommodate that, it's that you're going to get the legal and the illegal mixed up together. So there are lots of options for training both at the application stage and then at the current employee stage. Another thing to be thinking about is training, and I'm, you know, as anybody who knows me knows, I'm, I'm a big proponent of training, but I'm also a big proponent that if you're not going to do it right, you probably should not do it at all, because poorly done training can be destructive. It can actually uh, make things worse rather than better, either because you've given people inaccurate information that they then act upon, or you have sent a signal that, yeah, I'm, I'm doing this training, but I don't really care about this issue, and you may actually be making some of your morale uh, problems even worse. So in terms of training, though, Robin, and my commitment that if we're going to do it, we do it right. Can you just give us an example, you know, from your perspective and your knowledge, what are some of the things that we could train, um, say, supervisors and managers about that would allow them to be able to recognize some of the signs of potential opioid abuse? Sure. I mean, there some, are some physical signs. They really vary depending on the drug, but there are some general acute physical signs that may occur shortly after or during drug use. Some things you may see are changes in pupil size, 
They get smaller with opioid intoxication and larger as a person is withdrawing. Um, you may see nausea, vomiting, sweating, shaking, um, dry mouth, shortness of breath, disorientation or confusion. Um, with heroin in particular, you may see cycles of hyper alertness followed by suddenly nodding off. And that's because heroin um, produces initially a downer effect and then rapidly in induces a state of euphoria. Some symptoms, um, you know, after a person builds tolerance with long-term use are a little more obvious, like weight loss, infections or abscesses at injection sites, track marks from needles or cuts and scabs from skin picking. Physical signs may be difficult to spot or a, or a person might be able to hide some of these more obvious physical giveaways. So there are some general behavioral lifestyle and behavioral patterns and other red flags to keep in mind. You know, as, as people tend to withdraw from normal activities and commitments and lose interest in things they're, they're usually interested in as they become addicted to opioids. Um, some of these things you may see are like changes in personality or attitude, changes in hobbies or activities. The individual might start missing work or all of a sudden their, their, their performance at work is going down. They may become more isolated or more secret, um, moody, irritable, nodding off, more time sleeping. And then you may see some decept deceptive behaviors like stealing or lying, things like that. So all of those are really important things for our supervisors and managers to know about and some of them are objective you know that they they could see right in front of them so that's important for them to know and to understand the other thing I would want to include in training beyond here are the signs for you to recognize are a couple of other things one make sure that those supervisors and managers who are being trained about the chemical or or physical or behavioral aspects are also being trained about what resources might be available to them um, the first one is you know what resources do I have as a manager in terms of someone I can get assistance with or go talk to within the company about my concern about my coworker, my employee um, what are some of the programs that might be available within the company do you have an EAP an employee assistance program that allows people to get um, treatment or counseling uh, regardless of whether they're enrolled in your health plan. Um, and then there's the health plan itself. Does it have uh, services available for drug treatment and so on that may be of assistance to those employees? So when you're doing that training, I think you probably want people to have some sense of that broader picture too, that it's not just, gosh, I, I recognize the symptoms in this coworker. That's really too bad. I guess we're going to have to fire him. There might be other options um, along the line that, that could um, also be employed. Uh, under those other programs. The other part of the training, in addition to know the signs, know the resources available within the company, is the expectation that we have for those coworkers as bystanders. Bystanders need to be incentivized and uh, made to feel safe coming and reporting. Um, if they think that you know that's not something culturally they're supposed to do, gee, that guy's not my problem, it's not my issue that he you know, is uh, you know looking like he may be a safety problem uh, on that equipment over there. Um, we really want to build a culture within your company where people feel a collective sense of that responsibility and that as bystanders, they are expected to and required to come forward. There may be cases where they're wrong. The, the person is not, in fact, um, dealing with a drug addiction, but 
you know, the air on the side of caution, come forward and let people know that that's, that's a safe and expected thing for them to do. In terms of response, let's say you do determine that you have a, an employee who's struggling with one of these issues, either from a, uh, a legally prescribed uh, opioid or from a street drug. As I said earlier, the ADA does not require accommodation of current drug use, but it does uh, require us to uh, potentially make accommodations for someone using legal drugs. Obviously, safety first is going to rule over any such accommodation, but it's really got to be a fact-specific and individual-specific inquiry. Um, another thing that comes up is not only for the employee themselves that is struggling with the issue, but when you've got an employee who has a family member a mother, a father, a sister, a brother, a child who is struggling with these issues. You know, Robin, you and I both spoke at a conference not too long ago where we asked for a show of hands of people in the room who had either had a, an immediate family member or a coworker um, have this opioid crisis touch their lives in some way. And I think something like 75% of the hands in the room went up. So employers can only assume that they do have some percentage of their workforce either dealing with these issues directly or having a family member. So what if you have an employee come forward about an issue like that? What are your obligations and opportunities? First of all, if the employee is, uh, says, hey, I, need, I just need time off because I'm, you know, I've become unreliable due to the, the symptoms of my opioid abuse, that's not something you necessarily need to accommodate or that would make that employee eligible for leave under the Family Medical Leave Act. But if the employee is going into a drug treatment program, that may be uh, potentially something covered. Similarly, if the employee says, I need time off to facilitate my child's treatment, my parent's treatment, that may also be something that is subject to the FMLA. So you will want to give that a look. So again, testing, training, treatment, response, leaves of absence, those are all important areas uh, to be thinking about. Uh, as you anticipate or are dealing right now with the effect of opioids in the workplace. These are complex issues, and our goal today was just to give you a quick overview of some of the potential issues and a working knowledge of the science, and we hope from there that uh, you can go forward and make the kinds of policies and testing and training that you need to be doing to keep your workplace, workplace safe. So thank you all for joining us. Uh, Robin, thank you so much for your really valuable help today. And uh, thank you, everyone. So now it's time to let's get back to work.